Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. I hope this finds you all well and thriving this morning. Our guest today is Dr. Phil Wolfson, who's written a deep and touching book called Noah, A Father-Son Song of Love, Life, Illness, and Death. This is a story that's written with clarity and grace. It's the memoir of an adolescent boy's four-year struggle with leukemia. The boy is Dr. Wolfman's son. Wolfson, I beg your pardon. Dr. Wolfson's son. His untimely death at 16 and the aftermath is presented from three perspectives. Using journals and recollection, Dr. Phil Wolfson recalls the events chronologically. His son's chemotherapy journal offers a stricken teenager's private view of illness. His wrestling with such enormous strength, stress while striving to live within the framework of normal expectations for adolescence. And the third perspective derives from the author's realization that his intimate relation with Noah continues after death. Dr. Phil Wilson, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Good morning, Richard. Thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's, a, it's a privilege to have you on. We're going to do the interview in a few minutes. But first, we're going to do news and notes in psychology and medicine. And Phil, I'm inviting you to join in on this. It's a first. Thank you. I'm honored. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, GERD, is a condition which, in which the stomach contents, food or liquid, they leak backwards from the stomach into the esophagus. That's the tube from the mouth to the stomach. And this action, when that stuff comes up, can irritate the esophagus, and it causes something that we call heartburn. It sort of feels like your heart's burning, but it's not. It's your esophagus that's burning, and it can cause other symptoms. Now, as a way of dealing with this, scientists have come up with various inhibitors to control the acid reflex, and, and the, one, the most popular one is something called proton pump inhibitors, PPIs, and they have been used extensively in this country, as you know, Phil. Um, well, here's a problem, and that's the reason I'm bringing it up today. Researchers have found that long-term users of these inhibitors, these chemicals, these medicines that are being used to help those of you who are suffering from this GERD, from this acid reflux, that these medicines are causing fractures, that people who use these over long term are getting 30% more likely to get fractures of the bone, and those taking high doses were 53% more likely to get hip fractures in particular. I'm reading this to you also, but those of you who are listening or know people who have GERD who are taking the PPIs, please consult with your physician. Tell them you heard on the radio about this possibility of fractures long term and find out what else you can do. You have any comment on that, Phil? 
Well, yeah, I think it's a very interesting finding. You know, the recommendations for use of a drug like Prilosec are to use it for two weeks and stop, but the practice of gastrointestinal medicine uh, has gotten into using it very long term. I think people forget about the use of uh, uh, antacids and uh, uh, H2 uh, inhibitors. So I, I think you can do, for most people, two weeks of Prilosec supported by other drugs like cimetidine or pepsin, to use a brand name, and continue on with the antacid and the acid inhibition uh, and get a pretty good result. Thank you. Placebo. Placebo. Placebos have been shown to have a huge effect on people's symptoms and and a vast array of illnesses, even actually changing the body's physiology. And the use of placebo is is very widespread. Uh, In recent surveys of German and American doctors, half of the doctors, Phil, listen to this, half the doctors said at some point they prescribed patients placebos, a pill with nothing in it, no active ingredient. But doctors who want to exploit the power of placebo have to take the ethical, ethically dubious step of, of deceiving their patients because you have to lie, you know, you tell them you're getting a real drug when you're not getting a real drug. Now comes a doctor at Harvard University, Dr. Ted Kapchuk, who did an experiment in which he, he showed that even when patients know they're getting an, a placebo, the effect of the placebo tablets on irritable bowel syndrome, which was what he, he evaluated, was huge. Twice as, as much effect was found in the patients who took placebo knowing they were getting a placebo than those who had no treatment whatsoever. What do you think of that, Phil? I think that's wonderful news. That means you can take almost anything, enjoy it, and get a good effect. Exactly. Call it a placebo. Call it a placebo. And why does it work? People are are talking about that. Mind and matter are one. Mind and matter are one. Even in the face of of accurate information, mind and matter are one. One of the things that uh, Kapchek of Harvard is saying is that under the white coat, and despite all the high-tech tools at modern medicine's disposal, we, we doctors still have the feathers of a shaman. In other words, people see us as the doctors as a shaman, you're getting a pill of some sort, and even though it's a placebo, it has a positive effect. Mind and matter are one. Good quote. Well, this is the last uh, news and note, and it's in some ways a rather unpleasant one. Of course, there's always a struggle between freedom and safety. How much freedom do we want to give up for how much safety? How much safety are we willing to give up in order to have more freedom? Well, on the 16th of May, the U.S. Supreme Court has made it significantly easier for police to force their way into a home without a warrant. On Monday, the court, by an 8-to-1 vote, held the warrantless search, warrantless, I'm underlining, warrantless search of an apartment after police smelled marijuana and feared that those inside were destroying incriminating evidence. What this now means, folks, is that if the police come to your door and they knock and you don't immediately answer and they hear something going on, or they think they hear something going on, or in some cases, if they want to hear something going on that they wish to interpret as destroying evidence, 
They can smash down the door, as they did in this case that came before the Supreme Court, and they can go right into your apartment, seize, and arrest. In this particular case, they actually went into the wrong apartment, not the one that they were looking for. They went into somebody else's apartment because they knocked at the door thinking they were in the right apartment. They weren't. The person on the other side didn't respond. They smashed down the door, and they found a guy in there who was smoking marijuana and using cocaine. The wrong guy, but he was sentenced to 11 years in prison, and the Supreme Court upheld the decision. We have given up liberty in the name of safety. Something to consider. Any comment on that, Phil Wolfson? I'm not sure what the safety is. The safety, is, uh, what is the safety of, uh, that, we, that we gain by allowing police to smash down doors and go in? That's a good question. Maybe our listeners can be thinking about it and call in later during the show. But now we're coming to you, Phil, and the book you wrote about your son, Noah, a father-son song of love, life, illness, and death. Why did you write this book? Well, uh, Noah is my firstborn uh, son. I have two sons. Um, and uh, I uh, came to being a father at 27 with a little bit of fear, but a, a, a great deal of happiness. I always felt I had fathering in my bones. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to think, oh, I wanted four kids. I got a little more realistic as I got older. So I had this uh, extraordinary uh, kid born into the uh, early 70s, the end of the uh, 60s kind of life, and uh, we had a wonderful time. Uh, we went to Europe for a year when he was 10 and his brother was 6. We bought a camper wagon. I took off the only year of my life from working as a physician, and we, we just always had a wonderful time. And then suddenly at uh, 12 and 3 quarters, uh, after a series of... Uh, strange mishaps, which I missed clinically, uh, he was diagnosed with uh, acute lymphocytic leukemia. And uh, because he was beyond 12 years of age, there was a higher risk for him of uh, losing his life, which in fact did happen. But because of uh, modern medicine, chemotherapy, he was uh, saved from the brink of death. And uh, we lived a life with him uh, over almost four years during uh, which time we tried everything, and he tried everything. He was a brave and stalwart human being at times, especially in the early phase, uh, uh, just inundated with terrible emotion and fear. But we had a remarkable experience, and during that experience I kept some journals. I never thought of writing a book, uh, but after he died, uh, presented with this unique experience, which came through... Uh, my and our family and our community's um, unique framework, I felt uh, I wished to uh, memorialize both Noah and, uh, and the experience and have it be of benefit, I hoped, uh, for others going through catastrophic illness, which virtually every one of us does eventually. So uh, I started in my own slow and uh, 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 broken uh, sequence uh, way of writing and finally finished this book uh, a year ago and it's about to come out May 31st and I have seen it as an offering both as a, 
uh, a mark for Noah to help him be remembered for his short but uh, valiant and vibrant life, and as a uh, way of benefiting others who are struggling, sort of a guide to what can go wrong, what can go right, how you cope, and what befalls people in this, not to say that my experience is the only one. So that's how I view it, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to have finished, very glad. How long have you been working on it, 20 years? No, I, probably about 10, 12 years. 10 or 12 years. Noah, a father-son song of love, life, illness, and death, published by Random House, coming out May 31st. Folks, if you're listening to this, if you, if you go to uh, Dr. Phil Wolfson's uh, website, you can just Google Phil Wolfson, MD, and you'll get right there. You will be able to view the video made by Phil's other son, which is a, a, a touching video, and which I told Phil before the program today. As soon as the video came on, I started crying. I, I didn't stop until probably five minutes after it was over. It was just, it was so touching and heart-wrenching, this uh, brother uh, writing about his dad, I mean, uh, talking about his dad uh, and the experience of the book. Phil, you, you mentioned when I uh, asked you, you know, why'd you write the book, you started out by saying that you know, there was a series of mishaps and I imagine some of our listeners, you know, heard that, and they're wondering, you know, what are these mishaps? Is there something we... Here's a physician who, who's saying that he missed something, he missed some things. What, we're listening. What might we be looking for? What, what, what were the mishaps to begin with? That you, well, uh, you know, I am a physician psychiatrist, and I practiced medicine a long time, even by the time uh, Noah got ill. So uh, when you have leukemia in the early phases... Most of the signs of it are uh, related to the uh, blood system. You're making much less uh, red cells as the bone marrow is crowded out with uh, mutant uh, leukemic cells. So you start to have symptoms of, uh, of bruising because you don't have platelets or you suddenly start to bleed again because of the absence of platelets. Uh, so uh, he had a a bicycle accident, for instance, in Golden Gate Park. We were cycling together. He fell down, and suddenly an egg-shaped lump, a blue lump, uh, blew up on his leg. It was horrific. He was screaming in pain. A woman came to help us. And uh, I ran to get the car, put him in it, and by the time I got home and I was ready to ice it, it had pretty much gone away. Um, there were other signs of bleeds and fatigue is a particularly uh, strong sign because uh, you don't have enough blood to uh, make you energetic. You start to become anemic. I missed four or five things. A friend, doctor, uh, took uh, Noe, that's his nickname in the title of the book, to uh, the emergency room where he worked and looked at him and we didn't find anything. No one did a blood test. And I, I think the moral of the story is you really can't prepare for these things and you really can't imagine them. Uh, leukemia is one in a thousand kids. Uh, you're just not thinking that way. A kid has a cold, seems tired, run down. Uh, you, you don't grasp it. But I, I held myself responsible for missing uh, some more telltale signs like that egg and bleeding from his lip. Denial is a very powerful thing. And what did you do with yourself when you say you held yourself responsible? Well, I, uh, you know, runs the gamut. I've hated myself at times, really distrusted myself, um, taken myself to task, uh, you know, thought, 
you know, who the hell am I? What do I know? I know nothing, which is always refreshing to remind oneself. Uh, and just in general, tried to be much more careful in my watching and, and especially looking at uh, denial um, and trying to be more alert and alive and not suppress uh, uh, information. Was was this holding yourself responsible and blaming yourself? Did it affect your daily life, your relationship with your wife, with your other son, with your practice? I, I think it made me a better physician. I don't think it affected those areas. I think it just made me wise up a bit and you know, kind of look at arrogance that sneaks in, and you don't mean to be arrogant, but it comes in anyway. Make assumptions, and I, I you know, I think it, I just have held it inside myself as my own fallibility, which is good to remember. So it's not that you, you you held yourself responsible in a put down and knocking yourself down to the floor way, but more as a kind of wake up call of the of the imperative of staying awake and 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 poking your nose everywhere you could as a physician, more like yeah, that? Yeah, I think, I think for the most part I kind of have uh, uh, hated guilt and blame. I don't think they help very much, but responsibility uh, is educative and uh, makes one, I think, more alive and moral and, and uh, alert to the needs of others. So, yeah, I, I see it as responsibility, really. And... Can you remember when you, uh, you must remember, I'm sure, uh, uh, when you got the actual diagnosis on your, uh, of your son's illness? Well, I, w I was still in denial. It's an interesting story. <clears throat> I, uh, I, I couldn't resist knowing something terrible was going on. We were in Lake Tahoe, and Noah had had a bleed in his lip uh, driving up there, and uh, he couldn't play tennis. He was really tired, and that bleed continued. And we aborted our July Fourth vacation, drove back. And as I was driving back, uh, in my denial, I called a friend who's a uh, cardiac specialist of consequence, and I said, "I got to bring my kid in." And uh, and I knew I was being crazy. Well, why was this cardiac? The only reason I had was that his pulse rate was like 120. And uh, that's just far too high. At first, I thought, oh, maybe this is altitude, like I was 6,000 feet. But it made no sense. And so I was starting to bust open. And on the way home, uh, on the way to the hospital, actually, uh, I, I just sort of cracked. I didn't still know that it was leukemia, but I knew it was terrible. And so we got to the hospital. and uh, You knew something some terrible was going on. Oh, yeah, no, no I, I just couldn't hold on to the idea that this was uh, a cold, normal stuff. A kid gets tired, it's mono, you know, all the things you have in your mind. So we got to the hospital. We, My cardiologist friend, Ed, drew blood and sent it over. He knew. He sent it over to uh, the oncologist at uh, CPMC, and he came down, and we had the diagnosis, and life truly changed. It was an explosion. Tell me, what, what what was your emotional state? Oh, you know, uh, I guess I've lived in as much anxiety as people can live. You know, these are not equivalent to being in Baghdad and being bombed or Afghanistan where it's so chronic. But suddenly, you know, you just your whole life is turned upside down. All your expectations change. Your child is uh, potentially at death's door. Noah had a platelet count of 14,000. He was in the lethal zone for a bleed out into his brain, 
you know, you suddenly can lose a child. Right there on the spot. And you're having to deal with your own terrifying anxiety, and yet at the same time, you've got to be there for his terrifying anxiety because he's now finding that out, correct? Yeah, I don't. I didn't put myself first. I mean, my yeah. focus was on him of and course. my family. Uh, but nonetheless, you're inundated with extraordinarily powerful uh, uh, feelings, and you, you know, immediately comes up. Let's get the hell out of here. Let's run away. Let's, you know, crash the car over the edge. This is too much. Let's get out of here. This is not supposed to happen. Was he told on the spot that day when the oncologist came back from CPMC with the, with the results? Oh, most definitely. He was confronted with the whole thing. So and, uh, Repeatedly that day. And it was, it was very harsh. I mean, we went from CPMC. We had two. We were in the middle of a change of insurance, and we went to uh, Kaiser, where a wonderful oncologist started out with us again. So for the second time, he was... Uh, brought up to speed, so to speak, uh, in his shocked uh, little way. and uh, He's sub-13. He's 12 and three-quarters years yeah. old. How, yeah. how do they present this to him, Phil? Uh, like uh, normal speak, you know, like uh, uh, a physician telling you the story. It went into things like, uh, actually, he had the, the courage to ask the question, will I be sterile after chemotherapy? He was dealing with the whole gamut and he was told of course he might be sterile after chemotherapy uh, but you know the whole course of treatment was laid out and uh, what would happen to him and the life risk that he was facing did they talk to him in terms of life expectancy or probability of making it through with the chemotherapy or did they give him a, a terminal diagnosis how was that presented well, the, the fact of that time and this time is uh, pretty much the same for longevity. Uh, at that point, it was about 65% of kids uh, could be expected to be cured, meaning five years of life uh, or more. That's the uh, benchmark for when you say someone's cured of leukemia. So he had a 65 to 70% chance. Now it's about 75, maybe 80% chance. And in an older child, the leukemia is a different set of mutations usually, so it uh, it can present more like adult leukemia, which is much harder to cure. Uh, but, you know, we were told, and he was told, that it would be probably in that range, 65, 75% chance of long-term survival. Uh, and that there might be secondary cancers caused by the chemo, which does happen. Uh, but he, he was not given a terminal diagnosis. He was told that if he didn't immediately get transfusions, he could bleed out. So, what he, so the takeaway for him, and I, I imagine so for, for you and your wife and your other son as well, was we've got to do everything we possibly can to be part of the 65%. Absolutely. And you start doing everything you possibly can. What are some of the things that you did? Well, you, you know, you, cha you change your life. Your whole focus then becomes treatment hospital, helping your child to uh, get through uh, terrible uh, chemo that affects him in every way, uh, from short-term effects uh, that uh, can rattle the mind completely, as it did Noah's, so that he was quite psychotic for a little while, a few weeks. What and caused this? What caused the temporary psychosis? I I think it was complex, Richard. It was uh, both uh, the impact of the diagnosis and 
suddenly the the full invasion of one's body you know we we have a certain sense of uh, uh individuality and privacy to ourselves and you're this kid running along who has never really had a contact with medicine uh, other than little bits of pediatric wellness stuff and you're suddenly thrust into uh hospital beds and doctors and needle after needle aided needles so you developed a real complex about needles uh, and being uh, under other people's control. And then there's the mind-altering effect of uh, chemotherapy, particularly steroids, which often is underestimated as a factor in medicine. But really 25% or more of people have terrible problems coping with steroids of an emotional nature. They're difficult drugs, and you get them in high dosage in uh, the initial phases of uh, chemotherapy and many uh, cancers. Please let's take a, a small sidebar and talk to us about steroids and, and talk to our listeners about possible steroids that they may be taking. Well, you know, the model steroids are prednisone and decadrine. Those are the brand names, and uh, um, people know them usually as such. And uh, they're used in a variety of illnesses in varying dosages. They're great anti-inflammatory medicines, and they are um, the bulwark in rheumatology for rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. They're co-chemotherapeutic uh, agents in many treatments of cancer because they uh, reduce inflammation and they reduce uh, uh, abnormal cells, particularly white cell counts. So they're they're not themselves curative, but they're very valuable tools within medicine, and and not curative per se, and often with lots of side effects. Chronic steroid use brings on lots of uh, problems, and many people know the puffy cheek kids or adults who whose uh, fat uh, uh, cell nature has changed and they present with these round faces. We've all seen them. So uh, steroids are a bulwark of medicine and they're a problematic uh, part of medicine that's often not addressed properly. Do, do people who have a great deal of bony pain and joint pain commonly get hooked on these uh, steroids such as prednisone because they're so effective in reducing the pain and the inflammation? Uh, people don't get hooked on them like a drug uh, or, you know, an opiate. They get hooked on them because uh, the effect of them can be very beneficial. So people often go on and off, but it's a plus-minus game. People often have trouble when they go on and trouble when they come off. So uh, it's a, it's played when it's that way, and I think that's not the, the rule, but, uh, you know, it happens. It's played that way because people get benefit. There's also an interaction between long-term use of prednisone and bone structure. Is that not correct? Yeah. People get uh, more subject to fractures over time. Yeah, with you, you use. can get some bone uh, thinning. I, I don't have all that info yeah. in my head. Yeah. Sorry. That's all right. I, I remember that myself. Okay, let's come back. So, so Noe is, 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 uh, is taking these steroids. You, you, you witness... Uh, you know, aberrant behavior looks like a psychotic, if not a downright temporary psychotic episode. And then back to more, I mean, your life is taken up, your family's life is now taken up tremendously with treatment. Days, every day of the week, many days of the week, is he, is he living in hospitals? Is he living at home? Tell us about that. Well, at first, most kids live in hospitals. It's changed. There's much more outpatient now. 
but you know, the, because of the life-threatening nature of the illness, that diagnosis, uh, depending on which leukemia you get, you may spend time in hospital or immediately go to bone marrow, now stem cell transplant. Um, so even if you're not in hospital for very long, Noah was in for about two weeks, uh, your outpatient care is intensive and of course every bit of your social life is affected from friends to school uh you're now a sick and vulnerable person uh and this applies to adults as well so all your social functioning has to be reassessed and your support system is uh has to be reinvigorated and is often stressed and people uh are fairly isolated in general so a lot of people struggle with uh, who's my caregiver? Who's going to be there for me? Uh, who can I count on? Am I burdening people too much? Am I asking for too much? And you know, we're we're very highly emotional and very varied people. So people's responses are diff- different. But overall, there's a huge impact on on the life of a family and the life of the uh, friend, extended friendships and community that's around that family. So, you know, it's remarkable when we uh, watch TV or we think of war, we forget that for each casualty in a war, um, many, many people are affected uh, and depressed and hurt. And parents of kids lost in war, of adult young men and women lost in war, of relatives lost in war, you know, the carnage emotionally uh, is, is enormous. And the same is true for <clears throat> catastrophic illness. People all around uh, are variously affected, uh, both good and bad. Take us now into the future, maybe six months or a year after the diagnosis. Sure. Well, Noe, uh, like most kids, uh, went into remission, uh, which was wonderful. That meant his life wasn't immediately threatened. It didn't mean that it wouldn't come back, the leukemia, but... He goes into remission, and then the uh, the issue, because treatment in leukemia continues long-term uh, for three years or more, uh, depending on the diagnosis of which particular leukemia, uh, he had to uh, then readjust his life and we with him to a different school, to a more supportive environment. The public school couldn't really handle him. He was going to be one in a class of 30. He was going to miss lots of days, uh, so we had to go towards private school, which, uh, you know, public school accommodation is difficult for uh, kids who are not, uh, you know, in the mainstream, um, and to deal uh, constantly with the burden of treatment. Uh, after about a year, uh, treatment had switched to maintenance, and he had a terrible episode where because we readjusted his medication uh, to uh, compensate for his increased size. Contrary to a lot of people's beliefs, the uh, kids on chemo grow quite well, and he was moving towards six feet. He was growing pretty well. And so we increased the dosage. That blew his liver out as a consequence uh, unexpectedly, and he had to stop treatment uh, because of a, a toxic hepatitis. Um, but he, he continued on treatment into the spine because in leukemia, if you don't uh, treat in the spine, you can have a separate source of recurrence uh, because uh, the uh, 
the CNS, the central nervous system, is isolated from the rest of the body, relatively speaking, and you have to apply chemo directly. So that continued, and then we had a period of over how, a year. How often, excuse me one second here, Phil. Yeah. How often is he now, a year later, and he's in remission, how often is he uh, going for treatment? How many? How, well, how often can, is he having to go to a doctor or a hospital uh, or somewhere? You know, once, uh, once every few weeks. Had he continued in the core leukemia maintenance program, it would have been more frequent. But because of the hepatitis, he couldn't. Uh, but he was going in for, I think it was every two months or three months for installation of, of uh, chemo into his uh, spinal canal into his uh, central nervous system. Uh, so much I, of life returned to normal. That's what I was thinking. Much yeah. so, so now are, are all of you sort of readjusting and, and, and almost living a normal life and like this thing is fading even though it's like a sort of Damocles in the background? Well, you know, yes and no. Uh, for a kid like Noah, he's, he's been bald at least once. I think by that point it was he was pretty much coming back, but he's... He's uh, transfigured by the whole thing. When you lose your hair, people may be listening know this, your hair comes back different. Chemo hair is different than your old hair. Uh, he had a uh, portacath later where, you know, he had this lump of steel in, underneath his skin and his chest sticking out. And, you know, he was an adolescent uh, trying to look good and be attractive. And these things uh, uh, pull you down. And for a time he was bald and trying to wig and some kid pulled off his wig on a bus and that was of course horrendous and uh, exposing of him so you know the you it's not normal life richard it's not normal life and <laughs> and, normal and, and, life. and a year later is he still wearing this portacath in his chest is that well the portacath it? came a little later we had one oh, in and then one I out see. when he relapsed uh, two years at the second year level um, he had a portacath in how many, by the way, this, right now, he's, in our story, he's, he's close to 14. How, yeah. many, how many years ago was that when he was close to 14? Well, that would uh, be about 1986, Okay, 86. so we're going back 25 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had to ask that question because I'm listening to your tone of voice, and your tone of voice, you know, has a certain perspective and an almost relaxation about it and so I, I I sense that we must be you know it must be something way back in 20 it's a quarter of a century ago that we're now talking about well I, I I'm far from relaxed talking about this Are I'm, you? On the, I'm on the edge of tears oh uh, okay it's not a simple thing to lose a child no and, you know it brings us to a bit about grief which I hope is useful to people and here I am I've lost my child now almost 23 years ago and uh, I have very powerful feelings um, throughout the day in life, and they're easy to bring back, and uh, I miss him. I bet you do. I bet you do. I, I resonate to what you're saying, Phil. My story isn't the same as yours, but I've lost a child as well. And I'm sure that, uh, that hearing your story is, is uh, you know, it's having a powerful effect on me for that reason. And I imagine for some of our listeners, and by the way, folks, if you want to call in and, and, uh, and talk to Dr. Phil Wolfson, ask him a question or, or share something of your own life in this regard, the telephone number here is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. Feel free 
I welcome your calls, and I'm sure Dr. Wolfson will, will as well. Okay, he's now 14, he's in remission, and, you're, and, and it's, you know, it's sort of there, but it's a little bit in the background. What happens next? Well, he had a relapse um, <clears throat> suddenly out of the blue, uh, and we're now, when, when you have a relapse in this kind of leukemia, you're between a rock and a hard place. You're not going to make it. Uh, very few people make it out. You can get another remission, which we did, which gave us more time. Uh, this was probably around two and a half years. I always get foggy about duration. Uh, and then uh, we're back in the realm now of more uh, chemotherapy with less effect. In the first round of chemotherapy, you get the best shot. In the second round, uh, what's happened, and there's some very new interesting science that applies to uh, basically uh, most, if not all, cancers that you know, we're used to thinking that when a, a cancer recurs, it's because the chemotherapy was ineffective and some cells escaped uh, destruction and kind of hibernated or were, uh, were damaged but recovered uh, their wits and came back and whacked us. Um, there's some new information also that in any uh, cancer, there are multiple uh, cell lines of uh, mutant uh, cancerous cells, and while the chemo may successfully attack and wipe out one or more lines of those cells, another cell is more resistant to, to treatment of a cell of a different type and may survive that treatment. So uh, the uh, usual ideas about this are shifting as our ability to detect mutations and clone different cell lines increases. Uh, the science is getting better. The treatment has not really been affected much way of yet. So anyway, he, uh, he relapsed. We're back in, uh, in the midst of uh, trying to save his life, knowing that a relapse is uh, going to be fatal. He, of course, was not of that mind, and one of great uh, one of Noah's great aspects was he never gave up. Uh, he wouldn't talk about death. He wouldn't uh, admit that he might have an issue. He certainly crumbled emotionally at times, and uh, and uh, had trouble coming back. But he would go up to his room and lift weights and put on Springsteen. And God, he taught me more about rock and roll and what really motivates someone. So some rock and roll seems to really make you work out and do things, you know, like uh, he found. And uh, uh, he uh, persevered. He went back to school. He wanted to be uh, like uh, everyone else. He continued on the swim team. He tried with all his might uh, until he had the, the final relapse. Uh, we were in uh, Hawaii. Noah and I had a few days alone, and we were <coughs> on uh, Maui watching whales, and uh, I just felt for his pulse, and I could feel the pulse was up, and I didn't say anything. We got home uh, two days later, and I took him to the doctor, and uh, it was back, and that was like uh, uh, February of 1988, uh, and there was only one recourse, and it really wasn't a recourse, but you're, by that time, Noah was 16 and a half, and he really wanted to do anything possible to live, which as a parent of a child of that kind of mindfulness, one needs to respect, and we put our, our resources together and went to a Swedish hospital, which 
at that time and probably still was the most formidable and uh, able of the transplant units uh, for bone marrow transplant in Seattle. And he had a bone marrow transplant with uh, no real odds of uh, success because recurrence uh, in what's called a blast crisis is almost inevitable. Uh, so remarkably, his mother uh, was his donor but a somewhat imperfect one, which was not well understood at the time, meaning that uh, she, Alice, and I were probably cousins way back in Russia, somewhere in the shtetl, because we were compatible enough to give Noah a transplant, and uh, that transplant unfortunately failed, and within weeks we brought Noah home uh, to Noe Valley, where we lived, uh, to die, and he died six days after we got back from Seattle. And... What happened to your family then? What? What? Did, uh, tell me about his brother. What was well, that? his brother had lived in the shadow of uh, his illness as, as much as we paid attention, and I think we did a really good job. Uh, his brother certainly suffered in having to be sidelined at times and uh, play second fiddle to Noah's needs. And he was nine at the time of Noah's uh, diagnosis, and uh, uh, thirteen when Noah died, and so much of. Uh, that middle and very vulnerable and important part of life was taken up with Noah's illness. I don't think he's the worst for wear. He's a remarkable human being, a wonderful, friendly soul. People love him dearly, and he's a creative, thoughtful person. But it was very hard on him, and uh, uh, further uh, making it difficult was that, uh, as with many families, the stress of the illness uh, pulled Alice and me apart in many ways. And despite therapy and all kinds of uh, attempts at, at help, uh, we uh, we went into a, uh, a free fall away from each other. Um, that I don't think either of us wanted, but it seemed to have a life of its own. And a lot of that's in the book. I think uh, people may find uh, reading the book some relationship help. I certainly have tried to tell our story as as best as I can, and in all its honesty and at the same time, uh, look at how one can improve one's coping. That was where I was going next, actually, was to ask you about the effect on your marriage. Did your marriage survive, Phil, or did, did it not? No, I think there were both our, uh, our uh, sadness, the marriage, uh, became irreconcilable. And I think uh, I look at myself and I think I made a certain mistake of impatience, uh, the difficulty after, you know, someone close dies is that people's differences are augmented. We're all very different people, and marriage is renowned for bringing out those differences and making them into, uh, uh, you know, warfare. Um, Alice was deeply hurt uh, to the point of suicidal mind uh, in losing her child, and I was focused on keeping everyone going and making uh, Eric, our surviving child's life, uh, uh, great and beautiful despite losing his brother. So we're, uh, we were, in a certain sense, emotionally at loggerheads, and I think that took its toll. What, what, is, what are some of the things that you did, both as a personal person and as a professional person, to, to, maintain, to maintain your equilibrium to maintain your position as head of the household, to be supportive rather than dwell and go inside and go down a black hole? 
Well, we did, we did many things. Uh, Alice and I had always been uh, into psychotherapy and uh, had had a lot of experience with that. So we went back into couples therapy. Uh, we uh, got very involved with a wonderful organization that's uh, sort of been sidelined, Jerry Jampolsky's Center for Attitudinal Healing, which had groups for kids, uh, sibling groups, and affected child groups. So later I became a facilitator there and and parent groups and grief groups, which we, uh, after Noah died, went to for uh, several years and had a, a very supportive experience with other parents who lost kids. And I think that's a, a very, very important thing to do is to get into a grief group if you lost someone close to you. Get, we, into, get into a grief group. I, let me yeah. take an aside and say that a colleague of uh, Jerry Jampolsky's uh, Ron Nadeau uh, lives here uh, on the coast, on the north coast of California in uh, Fort Bragg, and he has a local uh, spiritual center for attitudinal healing. And those of you listening uh, who are going to take Dr. Wolfson's advice, if you have a situation like this and get into a grief group, I'd, uh, I'd recommend highly that you get in touch with Ron Nadeau in the, in the spiritual center. Yeah, he's so. a good guy, and uh, I know of him, and, and I think that's true for people who've lost parents or lost, uh, who are just feeling grief, that you go and share grief. And, uh, you know, men especially have a hard time. I was often the only guy in a grief group uh, with women uh, uh, only, and I think men really need to do this work. So they that's, need a, to get that's an, a plug. Yeah, plug for men. Do your job. Get out and work and, on your heart. Work on the heart. Yeah. So you went, that was, so one of the things you did, so, and then we, we we did many things. Uh, yeah, I want to hear some of the other ones because people are listening and they're asking themselves, the, what can the, I do? What can I do? The couples therapy in our case was not particularly helpful. Uh, I often think I'm the only good couples therapist, but I'm sure that's not true. No, I know of one other. I think he's down in Tennessee. I ever heard about him. <laughs> but, okay, so... Um, we did that, and then... Um, I hear Howard Levine in San Francisco does some great work. Oh, yeah, he's a good one. And um, uh, we we uh, had a long history of being involved in psychedelic work, and uh, never as a principal part of our lives. We were particularly political people of the 60s, and uh, uh, but we always had a relationship to that, and... Uh, we had made, I had made through my personal work, a friendship with Alexander Shulgin, Sasha Shulgin, who's unfortunately near death now. And uh, yes. Sasha brought to the world uh, ecstasy. Some people are grateful for that, some people aren't. But I was grateful, and I was part of a group of people doing uh, psychotherapy uh, with ecstasy back in the early 80s before it became uh, illegal, unfortunately, because we proved its benefit for uh, human beings in terms of psychotherapy. So the first that, time the first time actually that I experienced uh, MDMA was in my therapist's office back when it was uh, legal at Dr. Robert Cantor down in uh, in Burlingame. Yeah, well and Bob it, was a, a friend of yours and mine and yes. actually you and I met in 1985 in Esalen. Yes, and yeah. at, at the conference. Uh, yeah, that's uh, right. The, com- the, the conference that was motivated by ecstasy. Yes, that was... 1984, 85, yeah. just before it went illegal. Before Rick Doblin started MAPS. We're, yeah. we're on to an important topic here, and it's one that I'm going to be uh, doing uh, special programs on in the future, Phil, and I hope you will participate. And that is, I'm going to be inviting uh, psychiatrists and psychologists, and, uh, and as well as uh, ministers and people of various other uh, healing uh, occupations 
who are in their late 60s or 70s who have been practicing for 40 or 50 years to start openly talking about the beneficial effects that some of these medicines that are referred to as psychedelic medicines have had on their own lives, the, the positive effects, as well as the warnings. And you're talking now, you're touching on this as something that you use during this period of grief and, and suffering. And I'd like you to just spend a couple of minutes elaborating on how you used uh, some of these uh, psychedelic medicines with yourself and your wife. Thank you. Um, I, I, Richard, I'd be honored to be part of that. Um, so uh, we we actually did some unique things. It's in the book. Um, I've always been a, a spokesperson for non-hypocritical raising of children. I just published a paper in MAPS Bulletin in January about uh, suggested rules for the road, basically how to consciously raise kids uh, if you're smoking weed or you're using substances. And I, I, I think it's a good guideline paper, but I, I never liked the idea of seeing patients who were hiding in the basement smoking weed to avoid their kids. Um, so I always felt that if you have something to hide uh, from your children, uh, using judgment, of course, we're not talking about exposing kids to substances uh, when they're not ready to be exposed to substances or using kids that way, but hiding your own values from kids. If you really think you're, uh, that marijuana, for example, is good for you, then you should think that uh, you are uh, open about that, especially in your own home. So uh, that's how I lived. And uh, our kids knew when But there, we there's gonna... a question here that I've got to ask because you yeah. said, you, you, you mentioned you know, not necessarily exposing them until it's the right age. The listeners are asking themselves as they hear this, how do we know what the right age is? Do we smoke openly in front of our children when they're 12, 14, 8, 16? What's the right age, and how do we know what the, what the time is when it's okay for them to see this? Because as soon as they see it, they're liable to start experimenting themselves. Well, I think kids experiment without seeing their parents do it. I think that's the rule of thumb. Most kids don't watch their parents smoke marijuana and then say, oh, Dad, Mom, give me some. I'm ready to go. Uh, I think most kids do it with their peer group and at schools. And uh, as kids start at uh, 12, 13, 14. There's some work suggesting the possibility of uh, uh, increased rates of schizophrenia in chronic use uh, with kids who begin uh, very young and smoke heavily uh, through 15. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of concern and should be for kids' uh, maturity, judgment, uh, and for parents' maturity and judgment. So I don't think there's a rule of thumb. I think the one, one suggested rule I have is that if you misbehave when you're on substances, don't expose your kids to your misbehavior. If you can't stand up and take care of them, then don't do it in front of them. Do it privately. You know, uh, other behavior... Uh, then that it suggests that you're really not being a conscious person. So, In fact, one could go further and say, if you can't stand up and take care of them, then you oughtn't to be doing it even if they're in the house, because if something happens, you've got to stand up and take care of the house. I'm right with you, Richard. I agree. Right. So that's in my article, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I wanna, Give I wanna, us a reference for that article, please, Phil. Uh, people it's may... MAPS Bulletin recently. Uh, if people go to my website, it's on my website. Okay, the website is, is Phil Wilson, Phil Wilson, Phil Wilson, Wilson MD. MD. 
Com. And by the way, when Dr. Wilson keeps mentioning MAPS, he's talking about the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Multidisciplinary well, Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS for short. Let me give listeners another a little bit of, uh, of good information. MAPS, in fact, just published a wonderful book called Honor Thy Daughter by a woman named Marilyn Howell, whose 33-year-old daughter died of uh, colon cancer only uh, months after diagnosis, a great tragedy. And Marilyn, who's a Harvard-educated person living in Boston but who grew up here, has written a, a book about her uh, struggle to assist her daughter and uh, end-of-life use of uh, psychedelics, uh, which is becoming more common, and there have been some good studies on psilocybin and uh, some on ecstasy and other substances uh, for end-of-life use. It's a, it's a marvelous book. It just came out, and uh, she's a sister, so I'm suggesting to people, uh, if you're interested, look at Honor Thy Daughter. Honor Thy Daughter. Thank you. By the way, Aldous Huxley, of course, led the way on using uh, uh, psychedelics yeah. in end of life because I, he took LSD yeah. as he was actually dying. we got to wrap up on, on Noe, a father-son song of love, life, illness, and death. Richard, I hope they'll buy the book. Of course, Random House. And, and find it useful to... Uh, to uh, live and work with. I really appreciate being on your show. Thank you so much. When I, when we have a, I have a last question I've got to ask. Go ahead. It's 25 years later. 23. It's 23 years later. Thank you. You're still dealing with this on a regular basis, correct? Yes. So listeners who hear this, they need to know that it's okay to be dealing with it 23 years later, isn't it? Tell us. Absolutely. If you love someone, you're going to feel it for your whole life. You're going to feel it for your whole life. And and how do you keep it in perspective on a, on a weekend or a day in or on, on, a, on a regular basis? How, how do you keep it in perspective so that you honor your son, you honor your own grieving, but you don't let it take over your life? Well, I, I think most of us have mystical connections, uh, non-rational connections with people we've lost. And, uh, you know, so we stay in touch with them. Sometimes I still ask Noah's advice as a kind of mirror of my mind. Um, I think it keeps me uh, more modest and deeper thinking and being with him. And uh, sometimes I just kind of uh, dream and hang out with him. I still dream a lot about him which is wonderful. The dreams are not always easy, and often he's dead in my dreams or near death, but I still have a, an amazing time with him, so he remains uh, a living force in my life, though it's in my mind, uh, but it's also in my practice in the world. So I, I try and live a life that honors the struggle to be alive, and uh, at the same time, I, I strongly feel this life is it, and you got to make this life as entertaining as possible if you uh, if you want to value being here. When you talk to him now, do you talk to him out loud in your head or both? Well, I try not to look like a, a wandering psychotic, but I mostly in my in my head. I mostly, talk to I'll him. tell you, there's a reason I ask that. You're laughing, but here's why I ask that. I'm on sort of a kick to get people to talk to themselves out loud, Phil, and here's the reason why. When we when we talk. When we hear a voice, when you and I are talking to each other right now, I get a lot of information from the tone of your voice as, re as well as the words. I get information from the music as well as the lyrics. And when I think in my head, I don't get the same vibrancy of the lyrics. I hear more the words. And, and so I'm wondering whether by putting a stigma 
on our talking to ourselves out loud by, you know, you think you're crazy or stuff like that, whether we're losing some very important self-information that we could gain if we would spend at least some time now and then talking to ourselves out loud and getting that additional perspective. Well, think? I'm a Tibetan practitioner. I talk out loud, but usually in wilderness places when I'm hiking high and oh. nobody can hear me screaming. But I will try that, Richard. I'll take you up on that. Please, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on that sometime in the future because I, I really it just occurred to me that we could be losing a, a huge dimension of ourselves by not being able to hear ourselves but only in our mind and not out loud. So we'll come back to that. Phil, I want to thank you so much for for being on the program and talking about your, about your life, yourself, of course, your marriage, your son, your other son. Noe, a father-son song of love, life, illness, and death by Dr. Phil Wolfson. You want to check it out online, folks. Thank you, Phil. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much, Richard. Take good care. And thank you all for listening to today's very heartful broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my friend, Mike Delora. Please join me again in in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I see trees of green Red roses too I see them bloom For me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world I see skies of blue And clouds of white Right, blessed day, the dog say goodnight, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world.